Good morning, Portico. Welcome to your call of duty. I know I threw you all off. You're going like, hey, you came from the wrong side of the stage, but that's part of it. Keep you on your toes, right? Let's start by saying Happy Mother's Day. One, two, three. Now turn to a mom, make sure she's a mom, and wish her Happy Mother's Day, all right? Go ahead and do that. That's great. People were coming up to me this morning going, Happy Mother's Day, and I went, what do you know about my physical structure that I did not know about? So let's get this biological thing worked out right. If you need to use a Bible, ushers, could you help us out this morning? Would you get an armful of Bibles? If you're visiting today, and I know many of you are, and you're a little freaked out going, who is the weird man on the stage? Well, welcome to our series called Call of Duty. We're in Ephesians, and you can borrow a Bible. We're looking at Paul's letter to the believers living in Asia Minor, and we're in chapter 6, and this section deals with the fact that we're in a warfare. So it's not the physical warfare that we normally think of, but he talks about this call of duty, and it's the way we've referenced this as we're going through the series, and so we're having a little bit of fun with it, and we're so glad you're here. If you are here visiting, we promise to have you out by about 2.30, that way you can hit those reservations and enjoy your Mother's Day. And uh, no problem. It's going to be a great morning together. If you would like to follow online, if you go to uversion.com, look up Mississauga Live, look for Portico, you'll get the live events. You're going to find us on that, and you can track along as well. And so I would encourage you to do that. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6 as we get ready this morning. Let me just fill in the background. So we're talking about this call of duty, and we're looking at what Paul has talked about. And I'll recap real quickly for those of you who are visiting. In chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, Paul has been telling believers, followers of Jesus, he goes, God has rescued you from darkness, and he's brought you into his kingdom of light. And he describes in these two to three chapters, he describes the incredible work that God has done. And he goes, when you understand what God has done for you, and you know your position in Christ, He goes, it changes your life. You're not a slave because we have slave-master relationships going on. We had those that had been captured and conquered who are displaced now living over in Asia Minor. And he goes, when you understand everything that God has done, he goes, it's going to change the way you live your faith, the way you live your life. Then he gets real practical. He starts talking about once God rescued you, and if you're a follower of Jesus, now I know some of you, you're investigating the faith, and so we are so glad, and we invite you to continue that investigation and ask the questions, because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and He represents the true way to the Father, and so we'll talk about that. But as we follow Jesus, He says, now there's a way you live. There's a way you live in your marriage. There's a way you live with your relationship with your kids. There's a way you live in relationship with your employers and as employees. And then Paul gets very practical. He hits chapter 6, and he goes, you need to understand that the enemy who brought this whole chaos of sin into our world in the first place, he is very much alive and at work today. And though God has won the victory in Christ, he goes, don't forget this enemy is still roaring like a lion, intimidating people. He's still trying to keep people who are far from God immersed in darkness And so God's new community is being called not only to follow Christ, but he goes, I want you to help people find their way back to God. I want you to help them get out of darkness and get into light. Show them who Jesus is. So chapter 6 is our call of duty. And we were talking about the fact that we're all enlisted as a follower of Jesus. It's non-negotiable. You're not 
on the sidelines. You're not sort of quasi in the middle. He goes, you're either in darkness or you're in light. Figure it out. And if you're in the light, he goes, then you're enlisted and you're on. Then we talked about putting on the belt of truth that you have to suit up. Last week talked about the equipment. And Paul says, here's how you live the life. He goes, you've got to put on the full armor of God, not pick and choose. He goes, put on the full armor of God. And so last week we talked about the belt of truth. Now we did something last Sunday. Anybody remember? Oh, yes, we did. We did a seven-day truth challenge. How many of you still have your seven-day truth challenge cards? How many of you blew it before you left church on Sunday? That's good. I appreciate the hands that just went up on that one. The honesty is awesome. I like what Dwayne said during our worship service. He just talked about, you know, keep striving because we will fail. If you're visiting today, we did a seven-day truth challenge. We learned that when Paul said you put on truth, it's truth that wraps around the inner core of a, like a Roman soldier or the imagery of God as a warrior king. He said wrap yourself, the first piece of equipment you put on is truth. Truth in our thoughts, truth in our words, truth in our actions. So what we think, what we speak, and how we live. He said, make sure it's wrapped in truth. So I gave a seven-day truth challenge. I said, if you want to take me up on this, let's stand together. Everybody stood. Well, pretty much everybody stood. And we went for seven days. How many of you made seven days? Anybody? Yeah, a few hands went up in the room. It's because we're in a battle, isn't it? And we find that we need God's armor in order to prevail. And I thank you for your honesty because we do struggle, and there are times that we experience setbacks, but we don't give up. We stand on who Christ is, and that's actually what we're going to look at today. So if you take your Bibles, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 6 now. We're going to go to the next piece of essential equipment. We're going to talk about body armor, and Paul uses a phrase that they would have been very, very familiar with in the first century. I've translated it for our purposes today. We're going to talk about body armor, but Paul talks about this breastplate of righteousness. So look what it says in chapter 6, verse 13. Paul said, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, and go to the end of verse 14, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. That's what I'm calling body armor. He said, put on the body armor, the Kevlar suit. So when Paul was writing and he gave these words, these believers are living in Asia Minor. As I mentioned, some were slaves, some were free men, some came from all different kinds of backgrounds. There's men and women, young people, everybody's involved in this. So he used language that the average person would relate to because he's describing, you got to suit up, but he didn't want them to think in vague terms. He wanted to give them something concrete to be able to look at. So Paul, we know that he's in captivity. He's going to go before Caesar because he's appealed to appear before Caesar, we also know from history that Paul's life is about to end. So given the fact that he has a limited amount of time to write, he writes this letter with such an urgency, such a tone, that he wants people to not only visually understand, but then to personally appropriate this truth. So having the proximity of a Roman soldier in his own life, he draws the analogy, and he goes, listen, let me tell you about this belt of truth, and now let me talk to you about this breastplate of righteousness. And everybody who read this letter every one of his listeners would have remembered immediately what Paul was talking about. They would see Roman centurions and soldiers down near the Agora, down near the library, down in the marketplace, traveling along the highway. They would see the military forces moving across the countryside, bent on conquest. One of the images that they might have seen is something like this. If you look at the screen, there is this breastplate of covering that they would put on. 
And this image here is out of the Roman soldier era. Now, there were different kinds of breastplates that you could have. If you were a common soldier, so you didn't have a lot of money, you didn't come from a lot of privileged background, you would have a bronze breastplate. Sometimes it was almost like uh, little bronze plates formed together like scales. And you would wear a bronze breastplate, but you still have it. If you were a wealthier, a more elite soldier, you had access to wealth and resource, yours might be made out of chain mail. So your body armor was a little finer, a little richer, a little more ornate. So there are many different variations to it. But the image that I want you to see is, if you can look right at the screen for a moment, I want you to see the size of this. It runs from literally from the neck to the thigh. And there's a reason Paul uses this. He wants us to pick something up here. Now, we think about body armor. We go, oh, put the Kevlar vest on, you know, that the armed forces use, the military use, or the police use. But Paul was actually describing something that would convey a deeper thought. So two things are in play here. Using the imagery of a Roman soldier, Rome provided equipment and mandated that their soldiers have this equipment because this piece of equipment was the protector of the heart. It would protect their heart. A soldier is no good if an arrow has pierced their heart. You know that. And so when they're in battle, they needed something that was heavy, defensive, protective, so they would put on their breastplate. They would march with their body armor, and it was full, not just the heart, but of course their liver and uh, your lungs, everything that's a vital organ is protected by this. The other imagery that Paul has, because he's also a Jewish background and well-versed in Scripture, back in Isaiah, Isaiah talks about God being the warrior king who clothed himself in righteousness. He talks about clothed in the breastplate of righteousness. And so in Paul's understanding, Jewish mindset, and this is really, really important, when Paul wrote, a Jewish listener would have immediately understood that Paul was talking about two things. He goes, put on righteousness, put your body armor on, because for, there's two parts for Jewish thinking here. One is the heart, the center of your thoughts. It is your mind. It is all that you work together and understand and you process. It's in your heart. The second part for Jewish mindset, they believed that the bowels, the lower part of the abdomen, was the center of emotion. And so your feelings and your moods and your experiences, so you have your thoughts and your emotions tied together. So when Paul says, put on righteousness, put your body armor on, what he was really driving at is not just the righteousness part, but they would have immediately picked it up going, whoa, guard your heart the way you think. Guard your emotions and your feelings. Make sure that whatever you do, everything is protected here. So this teaching, this instruction comes down to us today, and we have a much greater understanding of what's taking place here. Proverbs 13 and 6, you can write it down. And if you're going to be in your small groups this week, we'd encourage you to do that. Just talk about it with your small groups. Here's what it says in Proverbs. It says, righteousness protects the honest way of life. That people who are righteous, righteousness protects this honest way of life. Uh, if you have the New International, it'll say it guards the honest way of life here. So when Paul tells these believers, I want you to put on this defensive armor, and I want you to put righteousness on you. Now you've got your truth, put your righteousness on. Why was he doing that? Because he knew that the absence of righteousness would leave us vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. That the ability to withstand the enemy's assault, and he'd already declared this, he goes, listen, there are powers and principalities that work. We don't war against flesh and blood. 
He goes, there are principalities much higher than we are. There are supernatural spiritual powers at play here. And he goes, and if you don't suit up, the absence of your armor is going to leave you vulnerable. Can I tell you, for a lot of people, even believers, it's this misunderstanding about our righteousness. And we often get tripped up. And we have our doubts and our fears and our confusion and our emotion drives us. And we don't understand what righteousness is and what our faith is all about. So this morning, what I want to do is just take a few moments with you because I know you're all hungry. Okay, you're not. That's good. That's good for me. Give me a little more time. Uh, I'm going to take just a few moments with you. We're going to talk about three observations of righteousness that we're going to draw right out of this text. So if you pull your notes out or if you want to go electronically, I'm going to cover it off for you here. Here's the first thing I want you to write down. I want you to put in your notes. God is your only source of protection. God is your only source of protection. What he's driving out here is when he says, I want you to suit up in righteousness, he's not talking about something that we do in and of ourselves. He's actually referring to the armor. Remember, I said this, armor provided by God. We don't bring this into play. God gives us this armor. And the first description that we find or this attribute about God is that God is righteous. So his own righteousness becomes the very sphere or source of our protection. The Bible says in Psalm 116, verse 5, it says that God is both gracious and He's righteous. I like that. God is very compassionate and gracious and life-giving, but He's equally righteous and protective and honoring. And He's got this wonderful imagery. He says, when you understand who your God is, and that's what we were worshiping about here, we go, when we get a right understanding and perspective of our God, He goes, you will be powerful when the enemy tries to come against you. But you have to know that God is your source of protection. Isaiah says in 41 verse 10, you can write a reference down, said God will uphold you by his righteous right hand. That it's God who is the righteous one. He is the one who is all-powerful. And the righteousness of God is a non-negotiable character quality. It's one of his attributes. He's the defender of the weak. Now, there are many, many beautiful pictures in the Bible. But one of the stories that I, I probably love the most is when... The Jewish nation, the Jewish people were actually enslaved in Egypt. And in the midst of their difficulty, they were in this severe hardship and they were being brutalized by their taskmasters. And the Bible says they were crying out to God. And this is when God is going to raise Moses up to be a leader. And the Bible says that God speaking to Moses addresses the condition of his people. And the words and the phrases that he used, he goes, I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned and I have come down to rescue them. This is the power of a righteous God. God saw people who were being mistreated, abused, they were in hardship, and he goes, I do not let injustice run rampant through my world. I will not let my people be abused. And when he hears the cries of his people, God is motivated, and the Bible says, what does he do? He wraps himself in righteousness. In fact, if you look in your notes in Isaiah 59, verse 17, this warrior king imagery, whether it represents God or God's advocate, it says that God, in righteousness, he actually wraps or he put on righteousness as his breastplate. It's his very equipment and the essence of who he is. This speaks so deeply to me because when you look at your life and you realize that if God is your source of protection, then who can come against you? What power, what force, what difficulty, what uncertainty can overthrow you if you know with absolute certainty that God is your true and sole source of protection? I like what Peter says. If you look in your notes in 1 Peter 1.15, P- 
Peter cried out, he says, hey, just as he who called you is holy, calls to the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, he goes, so you guys be holy too. And when you get this image that we serve as followers of Jesus, it's not just about being a lesson to be part of what Jesus is about and rescue people from darkness. He goes, remember the one who has already won your victory, the one who is most powerful over all. He's already defeated the enemy. We're in the last throes of the battle. Stand your ground. The enemy's lost this thing. He goes, when you understand who your God is, it will give you confidence to be able to stand and stand firm. You don't have to give your way. Now, we often struggle here to relate to God. He feels more ethereal. He's more removed. We're not quite sure. You know, I haven't seen God in form. So when we can't see him, we can't touch him. It's just we try to put things together to relate to him. And one of the best ways that I can share with you is only really out of my childhood. And when I grew up, I grew up, as many of you know, I grew up in a family. We had six kids. And so our parents were our, they were our, like our champions, our protectors, and our guardians. And uh, one of the things that they would do is, I remember we'd go, sometimes we'd go traveling, we'd go on our car ride, and I don't know if you remember, remember the old cars? They used to be like the size of a train. Remember those big cars? So we had six kids. They could put five of us in the back seat, no problem. And that was before you had to all buckle up. Remember those days? Wasn't that good? It was just nice and free. You didn't have to buckle. So you'd put five kids in the back, but you'd have this one option. Mom and dad would always choose one child to sit in the front seat. Of course, we'd always called dibs, you know, we wanted to go, but it was up to them. They got to select who. And it was like riding with the king and queen. And if you got selected, it was like, hey, and you look at the ones in the back seat, look at me, I'm on the front seat, you're not there. They were fair, they were always equal. But I remember that feeling that I would go sit in the front seat of the car, and whether we were going to visit friends or we were on a road trip, and you'd be between mom and dad, you know, and they would tower up above you, and you go, you felt safe, you felt secure. You felt protected. You know what a very, very special moment was? I don't know if this ever happened to you. But when you got six kids, sometimes they'd let you sit by the window in the front seat. You've been there. I, now I know. That was like the awesome spot right there because when you're in the back and there's five, you got to rotate and fight for the window. But if you're in the front seat and they let you sit by the window, it was like, whoa, look at me in the front. It's got nothing to do with righteousness. That's a freebie. Take that one away, all right? So when God is our source of protection... We know that we can stand confident. That's exactly what Paul is talking to. Go to your notes again. Here's another observation about this righteousness. It's not just that God is the source of our protection here. God equips you with the righteousness of Christ. So Paul, in speaking of this breastplate or this body armor of righteousness, the people were beginning to understand. So God is my source, and God equips me. As a follower of Jesus, people who have decided that Jesus is the Son of God and you make a faith decision to follow him, he goes, now God has equipped you with the righteousness of Jesus, not your righteousness. And that changes the game because now we are putting on his provision of armor, not the provision that we have. Can you imagine? Think about this. If all of us in the room here and those of you that are listening to me over in the video cafe or the other venues... If we were to enlist together, just imagine if you can do this. We're all going to go in the army today. You all in? I only had three. Okay, we're all going to go in the army today. You all in? Okay, you're making me feel bad here. We're not going to invade the states. I'm not going to take you out. We're not doing warfare. So we're all enlisting. In the can you imagine if we all responded to our enlistment and we just 
individually selected our own uniforms. We didn't collaborate together. We didn't talk together. We weren't given a list of what was appropriate to wear. We just all showed up to boot camp with our own military uniform and equipment. It would look ridiculous. Some would be, some of you, because, you know, I just look around the room. Some would be in like bright flaming orange. Snipers love those colors. Others would show up in white. I want to be the, you know, the big hero, and I'm going to just show up in white. Others would be dressed full covert black, black paint on their face. We would just be a most amazing dysfunctional army ever if it worked that way. And if we brought our own equipment, the danger in bringing our own equipment is we would bring ineffective equipment or imitations of what the real equipment should look like. And we would be in serious danger because if you use cheap imitations or substitutes, how many of you know you actually can threaten your very life by doing that? You're not convinced, so let me tell you a story. This will help you. So when I was growing up, uh, I was too young to play baseball. Any of you in the room know the game. It was called Scrubs. That's a game that you play when you don't have enough players to fill out a baseball team but you would play together with a limited number. How scrubs works is very easy. First, player, first person to call scrubs is the batter. Next one to call out is the pitcher. The next ones become the baseman and then the fielders. And the object of the game was you put the batter out, he has to go way out to deep field, everybody moves in a position, and a new batter comes into play. You stay at bat until they put you out. Everybody understand the rules? Okay, just looking for affirmation here. If you don't, don't worry about it. It's thick as mud. We'll get through this. All right, so I was going to go out with my brothers. My two older brothers were playing scrubs with our neighbors over on an empty lot. It was adjacent to our house. And it's down in southern Alberta. We just had prairie grass. It wasn't a refined park. We would just trample the weeds down, and we'd go play scrubs. I begged my brothers, can I play with you guys? And they said, no, you're too young. And so I would bug them every time they were playing scrubs. I'd go, please, please, please. I didn't have equipment. I didn't have anything. I just wanted to play scrubs. One day we're leaving the house, and they were going out to play scrubs with the neighborhood boys. And as we're going out of the house, I'm just tracing right along behind you. I'm just a little guy going, let's go play. Can I play scrubs? Can I play scrubs? And as I'm going out the door, I'm begging, I'm whining to my brothers to play scrubs. Before they answer, my mother from in the house says, he's too young. Don't let him play. Now, you know what happens when moms tell boys what to do, right? You disregard whatever mom said, and you just keep going. No, so mom said, he's too young. Don't let him play. We get over to the field. Now, we're just like kitty corner. They can see what's going on. We get over to the field, and I'm sitting on the sideline. I'm watching them all call scrubs. They're all out there playing, and I, I just desperately want to get out there, and I'm way too small. And so after bugging them relentlessly, my two brothers finally give in, much to my sheer pleasure. And they go, well, you're too small. Mom said not to let you play. So here's what they chose to do. They go, we're going to put you in deep center field, like way out in binocular zone. You're going to be safe out there. I didn't have a glove. I was too young to play, so I didn't know what I was going to I said, well, what am I going to play with? So they looked around, and they found an old discarded paper grocery bag. And they <laughs> flapped it out like this, and they handed me this paper grocery bag. They said, there, there's your glove. Go to deep center field and play. I walked out there. I was like, hey, 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 I've been recruited to the pro leagues. I'm ready to play. And I'm way out, kind of looking like nobody hits the ball out here. But I'm out there. I'm good because they finally relented. They let me play baseball with the rest of them. So they're like batting, and people are going out. They're rotating. And I'm thinking, there's nobody. Nobody's hitting way out here. And then Blaine got up to bat. Now, Blaine had my physique today. Okay, maybe a little better. Blaine was like, he was the big boy in the neighborhood. And Blaine got up to bat, 
And when he was up there, you know, the pitcher was pitching. And when the pitcher threw the ball, it just went straight for the plate. And it was like, he nailed it. Like he drove that ball. It went right, right up over the pitcher. And I'm in the outfield and I'm watching the ball sail. and go, that's my ball. That's my ball. This is my chance. I got my paper bag out. It's clenched between my fists. I'm thinking, I'm going to win this game. I'm going to get up to bat. Because if you catch the ball, you immediately go up to bat if you put the guy out. So I got this paper bag, and I'm watching the ball sail into the air. It's coming up. Now it's up into, like, up into the lights here. The sun is shining in my eyes. I'm squinting because I can't see the ball. I'm holding the bag in front of my eyes like this, so there's no shadow. Everything is good. I can hear my brothers yelling. I think they're cheering me on. I'm going, how cool is that? My oldest brothers are cheering for their young brother who shouldn't be playing baseball right now. And I'm just like desperately, I'm going to catch this ball. And my thing is right up there like this, and all of a sudden it does that. Went black. <laughs> Everything went dark. I fell to the ground. I felt pain shooting through my face and into my body. And I'm laying on the ground, and I'm out of it. I'm like out. Next thing I feel is like everybody's huddled around me. It's like Sandlot on steroids. Everybody's huddled around me, and I can hear the voice of my older brother, my next older brother, Doug, Doug, are you okay? And I couldn't see. Like, there was tears in my eyes, and everything was black, and I sat up, and then I heard my oldest brother, oh, no, mom's going to kill us. <laughs> I didn't know what they were talking about yet, and when I finally got the stuff wiped out of my eyes, I looked up, the front of my shirt is covered in blood and grass and dust. I caught the ball, but the bag wasn't strong enough to stop the ball. And the ball went right through the bag and broke my nose. So now we're in the sandlot field going, he can't go home like this. And I'm going, you think we're going to hide this from mom? Seriously, you guys. So we eventually did have to go home and explain what happened. Why did I tell you that story? I don't remember. No, I do. Because a lot of us, when it comes to our righteousness, we pick up paper bags in life. We choose our good works. We hope our good name. We hope all of our efforts that we do. Maybe we donate a little bit to a charity. Maybe we serve somewhere. Or maybe we're just good moral people. And we hope that all of that is like a paper bag. And it's going to be good enough to deal with the sin that the Bible says is in every one of our lives. That's what evil has done. It's immersed humanity into wickedness and darkness and sin. And God says, listen, there's only one way to deal with this. And there's only one piece of equipment that's going to deal with this, and it's the righteousness of my son Jesus. And yet a lot of us, and I think people even in the room today, if we were honest enough, we'd go, many times we rely on our own works and our own efforts, and we hope, we hope that maybe one day when we stand before God who is righteous, we can say to him, but I lived a good life. I was a decent person. And the Bible tells us, if you actually look in your notes, the Bible says in Isaiah that our righteousness is like filthy rags. That whatever we choose to pick up, whatever cheap substitute, I used a paper bag as, well, I blame my brothers. I used a paper bag as a baseball glove. But what is it that you pick up for your righteousness? What substitute are you playing with? Because we recognize that in Scripture, we can't have a righteousness other than that which is from Christ. Because anything else is self-righteousness, and our self-righteousness will leave us short and vulnerable. And God says, it's only through the righteousness of my son Jesus that you can have eternal life. That's where faith comes from.
In your notes in Philippians 3.9, even Paul said, I can't even have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. This was a man who fulfilled the requirements of the law. And what he recognized, the law will never save me. The law will never rescue me from the clutches of sin. That there has to be something more. And the law was put into place to lead us to reveal sin in us so that God might be the one that would rescue us. And so what we discover from Scripture, and we discover in the truth here, is that God says to those who are learning about faith, He goes, don't trust in your righteousness because your sin, your failure, and your mistakes will constantly trip you up. The cheap substitutes that you pick up, they'll never satisfy the righteous demands of a heavenly Father. He goes, but I, and I love this, this is the gospel. The Father says, but I took care of it for you. He said, I sent my Son who had no sin to become sin for you so that in his perfect life and in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead by the power of God, he would pay for the penalty of sin. He would break the power of sin. And God could equip us with the righteousness of Christ so that when the enemy comes along to tempt and taunt and torment us, we don't rely on our righteousness. We don't defend ourselves in our righteousness. We go, I am a new creation in Christ. His righteousness is on me, not my righteousness and not my efforts. But the only way you have access to that righteousness, the Bible says, is that you have to trust Him. Look in your notes at Romans 3.22. It says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. God is rescuing us from darkness. God is rescuing all humanity with the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, it doesn't matter who you are, but we are made right with God when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 9.21. The Bible says that God made him who had no sin to be what? To be sin for us. So that in him, we, be, we might become the righteousness of God. And then Philippians 3.9, it says, but that which is through faith in Christ... The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. There's a theme here that constantly comes out over and over and over. That if we try to use cheap substitutes, faulty imitations, we're going to fail. But God says, if you will have faith in my son Jesus Christ and his work, then you'll have the covering of his righteousness in your life. That's powerful. That is so powerful. You know, some of you listening to me today, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're maybe a sincere seeker. You're looking at this from all kinds of different angles. But maybe you didn't realize that it's this simple, that God has made provision for you not only to have your sin forgiven, not only to have your life cleaned and to have eternal life, He's made provision through Christ that you can stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the enemy has no foothold in your life. But it doesn't happen unless you have faith in Him. That's why the Bible says that you have to confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart. It's when you confess and believe, those two works come together, that's trusting in Jesus Christ. Now around here, what we talk about, we tell you, say yes to Jesus. And when you say yes to Jesus Christ, what you're really doing is you're basically saying, I believe Jesus Christ is who the Bible says He is. He's the Son of God. He is the one who gave His life for my sin, and God raised Him back to life, and in that power... I have access to new life. And if you've never said yes to Jesus before, today's your day. Today's your day. Because all of this is provided so that you don't have to live in darkness anymore. You can come into light. In fact, let's just stop and pray for a moment, all right? 
And maybe you just need to pray the prayer. Father, I just want to pray for men and women in the room today and those listening to my voice that they have never said yes to you before. What a powerful understanding of what you have done for us, that you have rescued us from darkness, brought us into light through your son Jesus, if we would have faith in him. So I pray that there would be men and women, young people, even children, that today, for the very first time, would say yes to you. And your word says, all who believed on him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are adopted, empowered, included, forgiven, loved, and accepted. And I thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. It's that simple. If you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family of God. Hey, why don't we give a big hand for people that did that? All right, let's go back to our notes. Uh, Here's the third observation I want to leave with you this morning when we talk about this righteousness. In your notes, fill in the blank. You need to suit up because righteous living is now your critical line of defense. So if God is the source of protection and God equips us with the righteousness of Christ, then what Paul was getting at at the end here, he says, I want you to put on the body armor. He said, I want you to have the breastplate of righteousness because this is your critical line of defense. It goes back to what I talked about at the beginning of my message. It covers you. It protects you. When the enemy tempts you, when the enemy throws doubts at you, when the enemy tries to trip you up, your righteousness that you put on is not your efforts. It's the righteousness of Christ, and you begin to live righteously. I put two things in your notes, two statements that are there in your notes for you this morning about what this righteousness does. It enables you to be invincible against the enemy. How, would, how many would love to be invincible? Yeah, I would. I'd love to be invincible. Not invisible, I said. Invincible. I think we all want to be invincible. We want to be at that place where when the enemy attacks us, we just go, come on, take, just hit me with your best shot. And we all start singing. But that whole part of the enemy coming at us and just going, I am invincible in Christ. And Paul says, when you begin to live righteously, you are. Now, careful, I did not say you would be immune to the enemy's attack. There is a lot of erroneous teaching, particularly within the kingdom of Christ, that says if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your life will just instantly be great, that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Nope doesn't happen that way. In fact, is there anybody in the room that's found that yet? Because even Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. He also said that you will be hated because of me, because you're going to stand for righteousness. He goes, you're going to be hated for that. The Bible says that in this trouble, in this world, we are going to face trouble. What does that tell me? I am not going to be immune from the enemy's attack, but I will be invincible to his strategies and his efforts. That's why Paul said, put on your, put on your full armor. Don't put part of it on. And here's, here's something you need to write down. Too many of us are guilty of selecting which pieces of equipment we want to wear. And Paul says, no, no, you want to win this war? He goes, you put on the full armor of God. You get the core of your life in truth. You wrap yourself, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Get your body armor put on. We'll talk about the rest later on. When you put the full armor of God on, you are invincible against the enemy. That's why the Bible says you can stand your ground. You can wrestle against the enemy and try as he may. He is not wrestling against you. He is wrestling against the righteousness of Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. He is now taking on the one who defeated him at the cross. And when you call on the name of Christ, you have power. That's why James says, resist the devil and he has to what? Flee from you. Some of you need to remember that today. 
Stand your ground, suit up with the full armor, and you will be invincible against the enemy. The second thing I have in your notes there is I want you to see this. Actually, there's a couple of verses. Let's go to those quickly here. Ephesians 4.24 says, Put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's that put on imagery again. Put off the old, put on the new. Look what it says in Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ... The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Stop. Through the righteousness of Christ, when the enemy accuses you, he comes after you for your failure, your mistakes, your undoing, and all you have to do is go, I don't have any righteousness to give you but I have the righteousness of my Savior, Jesus Christ, because God, you know, we talk about it in theological terms here, talk about imputed or imparted righteousness. God credits our lives with the righteousness of Jesus Christ because we've trusted him. That is so cool. I like that. So that when the enemy comes after me, I get to stop and go, Doug can't do anything. I can't defend myself, but in Jesus, I can and I'm a brand new person, and everybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you said yes today, that's true for you too, that you have that power. You are invincible against the enemy. Go back to your notes. Here's the other statement. Righteous living enables you to influence your world. Paul was writing to a community of people in Ephesians. We know they're living in Asia Minor. He was writing to a community of people, and he goes, don't become beat up and withdrawn and ineffective in your life. Don't allow the enemy to wrestle you down and keep you from being ineffective. You are powerful in the righteousness of God. You are strong in Christ. That's why he said you can put off anger, you can put off stealing, you can put off lying, you can put off, and he gives all this list of stuff we put off. He goes, you put on the new person that you are, and all of a sudden your life becomes this wonderful radiation of true strength in Christ. He goes, people will notice, people will see that you are different. Look what it says in Ephesians 5, 8, and 9. Once you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So he says this, live, righteous living, live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Friends, we will be persecuted. We will. We'll be persecuted for righteous living. In fact, if you're astute enough and you look at what's going on in Canada today, we're already persecuted because we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. There is a strong resistance against the church. And if you watch and you read the headlines and you see what's going on, even in the news today, you recognize that if you stand for righteousness, you stand for righteousness, you will be persecuted. Just watching some of the headlines over the last week, looking at some of our political leaders and if you want to have some fun, Google Justin Trudeau and just see what he said about mandating that his cabinet members and his MPs, that they have to be pro-choice. The sanctity of life and the challenge of what Scripture calls respect the dignity of life and protect life. And here we have in our country, I'll guarantee you, you stand up and call that one out, you'll be persecuted. I'll probably get an email. I'll be persecuted. That's good. I stand on the Word of God, and I believe in the sanctity of life, that all life all life is given by God and is worthy of protection. All the truths we stand for, even today, we stand for the sanctity of marriage. And when we stand for that, we face persecution. But we know that we are called to be influence in our world. Now, here's what I like about this. Because even though I know we're going to be persecuted, I am still invincible against my enemy. So Paul, or Peter, it's Peter who said something here. In 1 Peter, it's in your notes, and I want you to see what Peter describes. 
1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, he said, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which, watch, look at this, war against your soul. There's that warfare. I urge you to abstain. Live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. You go, Doug, what's going on here? I, I can just envision Peter going, listen, you're going to face persecution. You're going to face hardship. You are going to be targeted because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But I want you to, righteous, to live righteously in the world because your righteous living will influence the world. You're going to be salt. You're going to be light. He wasn't looking for a band of mercenaries. He wasn't looking for some commandos to go out on behalf of Jesus here. He was going, I want you just to put your feet down, stand in your righteousness. And he goes, and you're going to have neighbors that are going to taunt you and ridicule you. You're going to have co-workers that are going to call you out. They're going to think you're crazy. They're going to belittle you and demean you. He goes, but stand your ground. Because Peter promises something. He goes, there's going to be a day. And there's going to be a day when God is going to balance the books. And when the Father visits us, he's going to look at you because you put on the full armor and you stood your ground. And he's going to say to you, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. And here's the better part. Peter goes, and you know those people that were persecuting you? And those people that were calling you out? And those people that were challenging you? They're going to understand in that moment. And they're going to see who God is in his true righteousness. And they are going to glorify God because they recognize that they missed what you had the whole time. Friends, that gives me incredible courage to say, I can do this. I can suit up. I can stand my ground. And I can withstand an enemy who thinks he can take me. Who's in? Who's in? So let's do it. You ready to suit up? Then put righteousness on. Let's pray. Father, this morning, here's what we pray. I pray that we would understand who we are in Christ, that even those who have said yesterday would get a new understanding of what they can achieve, how they can live righteously, and how this world can be transformed, and we can rescue people from darkness, help them find their way back to you. And it's all through Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we leave this place, May we understand that we, it is on Christ and Christ alone that we base our faith. And so on Christ, the solid rock we stand, and nothing else will be a substitute for us. And we prayed in Christ's name, and everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you.